Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of First Peter. We are we just began last week a new series in this book. You see on the cover of your bulletin there, we call the series Exiles, Living in Hope and Holiness in a Land That's Not Our Home. And so we are in First Peter chapter 1, just looking at verses 3 to 5 this morning. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. As I just prayed, we get, to, we get to read this in our Bibles, friends. Don't you love that? So, so with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Well, as a parent of young children... One of the things that I've become an expert in is changing batteries in toys. A little tip is you can never have too many batteries when you have kids. And changing batteries, believe it or not, has taught me two important truths about theology. You're thinking, that's impossible. It's not. Here's what it's taught me. First, when a toy isn't working, it could be one of two things. On one hand... It could mean that the batteries are dead. There's no power in them. Nothing to energize and supply what this toy needs to work. And when that's the case, the toy is fine. What you need is to put in different batteries. Fully charged batteries. Okay? But now on the other hand, it might not be the batteries. But instead, the toy itself might be dead. The wiring and the parts inside might be defective. If that's the case, no matter how many or how strong or how fully charged the batteries are you put in it, the toy will be dead. The only time the toy lights up and does what it's made to do is when both the internal components are working and the batteries you put into it are full of power. You need working parts and full power. And theology works the same way. When our hearts aren't worshiping God the way that we're made to, one of two things could be the problem. On one hand, it might be that the theology we're putting in us lacks real power. Like a dead battery, there's nothing in the things we believe to fuel our worship. Nothing that empowers us to praise God. And if that's the case... What we need is to put good theology in us. Theology that's powerful because it's true. We can't simply swap out the dead batteries of one bad theology for another. We need to make sure that what we're putting in to fuel our joy and hope and worship is jam-packed with the power of God. Which brings me to something else I've learned about batteries. You know how, I won't speak for everybody, but my guess is many of us at home, 
we have some packages of batteries in our home, but then you've also got the random floaters. Though you know, the ones in the drawer, the mishmash that kind of, maybe they're in a box somewhere or you've got them in that junk drawer. And the problem with the ones not in the packaging is that you're never really sure if they're fully charged. Are, are these, ah, did I take these out of the package? Or are these the ones I took out of the toy? Are they, were they par- partially dead? I can't remember. You don't know if they're dead or maybe they've got a little juice but not enough to power anything. So if you want to be sure that you're getting power-packed batteries, you got to make sure you get them straight from the package they came in. That's how you know they're charged. Well, guess what? If we want to be sure that the beliefs about God that we're putting into our hearts are true and powerful, we can't take chances with random beliefs we find floating around in the junk drawers online or in the world. We have to be sure we're taking them straight from the packaging they came in. So we go to God's Word. We make sure the theology we're putting in our hearts to power our lives and worship is fully charged with God's power. And that's why we go to the Bible week after week to gather the theology that we're putting in our hearts. Because none of us needs more dead, powerless ideas about God. We need power-packed truth straight from God. Now, I said with toys, it could be that the batteries are dead. Or it could be that the toy itself is dead. That its internal parts don't work. You can put new batteries in there all day long and it won't make a difference if the toy itself is dead. In the same way, when our worship is lifeless, it might be that the batteries of theology we're putting in are dead, but it could also be that our hearts themselves are dead. If that's the case, no matter how much good theology you cram in, there won't be real power or real worship. If that's the case, what we need is to be made new on the inside. We need to have a whole new life. And the only way that real, powerful worship takes place is when both things are true. When we have new lives that are powered by true theology. And here in our passage, we see both. We see rich, robust power-packed theology, and we see a whole new life completely remade to work the way it's made to. And when you put the fully charged batteries of good theology into a heart that's been reborn, guess what happens? You see a heart come alive and explode with worship because all true theology leads to doxology. So what we're doing right now is not simply acquiring some cold, lifeless facts about God. You're not here to receive tips or tricks or hacks about life. We're being given power-packed truths that when we embrace them in our hearts, they cause our hearts to light up and worship. Which is what Peter does here. His first words, all he did in the last week in his greeting was say who it's from and who it's to, He basically said hello, and now the first words he wants to communicate, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This guy's exploding in worship. And then the rest of his passage, that's just him unpacking what causes a soul to burst out like that. 
Like, that's, that's strange. What would cause a person to start a letter that way? Well, he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us what powers worship in a Christian. So here's our roadmap for this morning. If you want to go ahead and throw up the slide. Don't be alarmed that there's six. They're going to be shorter. But we're just going to walk through this. There's no, they're not tied to one verse in particular. But we're just going to look at joyful worship, new life, great mercy, living hope, indestructible inheritance, and sure salvation. Sounds like some good news. So let's get going. Let's look at verse 3 again. Now remember who Peter is writing to in this letter. Last week, in verses 1 and 2, we saw two things were true about these readers, right? First, we saw they were exiles. As followers of Jesus, who had been made citizens of heaven, they were living in a land that was not their home. And that reality brought with it trials and troubles that come with being an exile. That's one thing we saw about these readers. But we also saw they weren't just exiles. They were elect exiles. They were chosen by God before the foundation of the world to belong to him forever. God the Father had set his love on them long before they were born. And then not only that, then God the Spirit sanctified them and set them apart. Why? For obedience to Jesus Christ and being made his covenant people by his blood. So when Peter contemplates these truths and he thinks about what he's about to say to them, it causes him to explode in worship. He says, blessed be God. His heart is full with praise and adoration and he can't help, but he's like, hey guys, the first thing we need to do before we get into the weeds here is let's just worship God for a second. His first words to these suffering and struggling Christians is blessed be our God. Now he spends the rest of the verses telling us why. Why should we bless God? Well, verse 3 says, Because he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. In other words, he has given us a whole new life. Now think with me. See, many people talk today of being born again as simply a way to describe a decision they made once or a prayer they prayed. It's, it's something they did. I, I was born again in 1968 when I, I raised my hand at camp or I was born again in college when I prayed this prayer. But that's, that's something too small. That's just thinking of being born again like that, that's way too doable for us. If that was the case, if it was being born again was something we did, why would Peter bless God for something we did? No, being born again is something way more incredible than that. Peter blesses God for our new birth because he did it. It says he caused us to be born again. That's why Peter blesses God for the new life he sees in his readers. Now, quick poll. This is going to be a hard question. How many of you were born? If your hand is not up, I have serious questions for you after the service. Okay, good. All right, follow-up question. How many of you were responsible for the cause of your own birth? Good. Nobody. Well, guess what? Being born again is the same way. We experience it 
But someone else brought it about. We can't bring it about any more than we brought about our own physical birth. That's why John 1 tells us that all who become children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He caused us to be born again. So why is this so important? Why is being born again such a big deal? Well, it's because Jesus told us that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Apart from this new birth, we are all spiritually lifeless. Last week, we talked about how we were made elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. And how foreknowledge doesn't mean that God simply saw what would happen in the future, but it means he sovereignly planned and purposed what would happen. And here's why that matters. Because if God had simply looked down the tunnels of time and seen who it was that would choose him so that he could choose us, the answer would be no one. No one would have chosen God on our own. Because we were all dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked. And I don't need to tell you that dead people don't believe. But then, but then, like a wind that blows wherever it wishes, and you know not where it comes from or where it's going, the Spirit of God blew through your lifeless soul and God made you alive together with Christ. How did he do it? How did God cause us to be born again? Well, Peter's going to tell us if you look down further in chapter 1 to verse 23. It says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. You say, well, wait a minute, what is that? Well, skip to verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In other words, he's saying, friends, if you are a believer in Jesus, God caused you to hear the gospel and believe it. To believe the good news of forgiveness through Christ and eternal life in him. And when this good news came to you, God gave you faith to believe it and love it and trust it. That's why we read, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is a gift of God. Not your own doing. Friends, if you are a Christian, I just need you to hear this this morning. You are a miracle. Like, you were dead. And God made you alive. This is why you've heard me say before, there is no such thing as a boring Christian testimony. If you're telling another believer how you came to know Christ and how you got new life in him, don't ever feel ashamed and feel like I don't have something sensational. I wasn't homeless on the street. I wasn't addicted to drugs. I hadn't thrown my life away. You were dead and now you're alive. You are a walking miracle. God caused you to be reborn and gave you a whole new life. And when we're born again, we get a whole new identity. Just like when a baby is born, you're born into a new family. And wherever you're born in the world, you're born into a citizenship. Well, when we were born again, we entered a new family with God as our father. 
And we became, by new birth, citizens of heaven. That's what made us exiles. That's what we're talking about here. And when God causes us to be born again, it's not a slightly different way of living. We are born again to a whole new life. But why? That's the question that, if you're tracking, that should be, and you're like, why would God do that? Why would he give us this incredible new life? Well, at this point, let's make sure the batteries of truth that we're getting are coming right from the packaging. So look back at verse 3. He did it according to his great mercy. That's why God did it. Do you see that once again we owe everything, not to something about us, but something about God. We are born again because he is merciful. Now I said that this shows us we owe everything to something about God. And that's true. But it does tell us something about us, right? Because if the reason that you and I were rescued and given new life is only because of God's mercy, well that clues me into the fact that we are a people who need mercy. We need mercy because of who we are. Friends, we are sinners. We are people who rebel against our maker, who think far too highly of ourselves and far too little of God. We constantly seek to seize control from him. Our hearts are cold toward God and toward others. We envy whatever we lack and we are prideful about whatever we have. But the amazing thing is that when God looked at us in our sinful state, he had compassion on us. When he could have looked on us with judgment, he instead looked on us with mercy. That's why we sing, who could imagine so great a mercy that the God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame? God the Father sent his Son to save us from our sin and from our lifelessness and give us a whole new life in him. And the best part is to get this new life in Jesus. We don't have to be good enough or do enough. It's not about how good we are, but how great God's mercy is. God gives us new life freely in his mercy. And the good news is his mercy is so great that it's enough for you, whoever you are and whatever you've done. No matter how great your sin, his mercy is greater. In fact, I hope you know this. I I try to bring this up over and over so that we, we understand why we do what we do. The reason we confess our sins together every week is to be reminded of how deeply we need mercy and how great the mercy of God is that he's shown us. Some people might think it's strange that we talk so much about sin. But friends, we can't celebrate the greatness of God's mercy if we don't talk about how badly we need it. When people tell the story, you've seen them on the news, maybe you've had family, you've seen it on Facebook, but when people tell stories about surviving a horrible car accident, don't they love to tell how bad the wreck was that they were saved from? Or when you hear of someone surviving a horrible disease, don't they love to include how desperately sick they were? Why? Because when you see how bad the situation was, that's what makes their salvation great. 
They don't say, yeah, I had a little fender bender and walked away when their car was mangled. They want to they give you pictures and say, look how bad that is. Can you believe anybody walked out of that with alive? That's what we do with our sin. We're saying we plumb the depths of our souls and say, oh my, I can't believe what's there. And you're telling me that there's a God who is so merciful, he would rescue someone like me? That's worth getting excited about week after week. We rehearse our sinfulness because it causes us to bask and boast in God's mercy. And do you know what comes exploding out of people who do that? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. So, because of God's mercy, we have a whole new life. Now Peter goes on and he tells us three glorious things that come with this new life in Christ. Three things that we were born again to. A living hope, an indestructible inheritance, and a sure salvation. So let's look at each of those. The first thing we were born again to was a living hope. Now when the Bible talks about hope, it doesn't simply mean wishful thinking. We use the phrase that way a lot, like, oh, I hope it doesn't rain later, or many of you are saying, I hope the pastor's keeping an eye on what time it is. Oh, you laugh because you know. That's not the kind of hope we have in the Bible. Hope in the Bible is something solid and sure, something we can have absolute confidence in because it's settled and certain. And our hope is sure because our hope is Christ. He himself is our hope. And our hope in him is better than anything else you might hope in. Because anything else you might hope in will eventually run out, fall apart, fail, or be taken from you. Money, relationships, family, success, health, all of those hopes, if that's what you're hoping in, all of those hopes will let us down because if not sooner, they all die when you die. But friends, we have a hope that lasts longer than life, a hope both in life and in death. How can this be? How can we have a hope like that? It's because on the cross, our hope died. That's a strange thing that would, we would say. On the cross, our hope died. It looked like sin and death had won. I mean, the disciples, they, they were banking everything. Like, Jesus, he's the one. And then he died. But then came the morning that sealed the promise. And hope came alive again when Jesus walked out of the grave. So that now we have a hope that's living and will never die again. Jesus declares in Revelation 1, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's why Peter says we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because that's when Jesus triumphed over death. So that we have a hope, hear this, we have a hope that can't die because our hope is in a Savior that did and now lives again. So that now our hope, friends, is as alive as he is. 
Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on us. Now the grave has no claim on us because his empty tomb is the promise that one day ours will be too. We have a living hope. Oh, and remember what our focus, I said throughout these verses is? That we're blessing God, right? Because God's the one who's doing all this, who's working this great salvation. Well, guess how it is Jesus was resurrected. Let your eyes roll down to verse 21. God who raised him from the dead. We have a living hope because God raised Jesus from the dead. And we have a living hope because God gave us new life in him by causing us to be born again through his resurrection. Friends, this is our God that we bless. The God who gives new life. But a living hope is not the only thing that comes with our new life. Verse 4 says, We were also born again to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, when you get an inheritance, typically what have you done to deserve it? Nothing. Usually you're simply born into it. And in the same way, we don't have this amazing inheritance in God because of something we did or some way we earned it. We were born into it when God caused us to be born again. Part of the new life and new identity he gave us was heirs of this inheritance. Okay, but what is this inheritance? Well, Peter's once again, he's, he's comparing us to Israel again here. We talked about this last week using words from the Old Testament of chosen and exiles and dispersion. Well, here's another one, inheritance. In the Old Testament, Israel's inheritance was the promised land, a place of peace and rest and fruitfulness where they could dwell with God. The problem is that when God gave them their inheritance, it didn't take long before they tarnished it. In Jeremiah 2.7, God says to the people, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage or inheritance an abomination. In other words, these people, they had this inheritance, but they quickly defiled the inheritance with their sin. And after they defiled it, they then watched it fade and perish as God brought judgment on the land. Now, Peter's saying our inheritance as followers of Jesus is also a home and a promised land where we can dwell with God in peace and rest and joy. But the difference? Our inheritance will never perish, never be tainted by sin, and never fade in its glory. It will never diminish or lessen. It will never be corrupted, and it will never grow less exciting or amazing or in any way lose its luster. Because our inheritance is an indestructible inheritance. Now, an inheritance like that, that's incredibly valuable. I mean, when you hear about heirs to certain fortunes and what all comes with it, you think, wow, that's really valuable. But this is more valuable than the greatest earthly inheritance. So what do you do when you have something really, really valuable? You protect it, right? You keep it safe. That's why my guess is we all have locks on our doors, 
Some have security systems on our home. Because the more valuable something is, the more we protect it, right? So then it's no surprise to us that when we read that this inheritance, the inheritance that's so valuable it costs the Son of God his life, that inheritance is being kept, protected in heaven for us. Well, how do you protect something like that? What would you, how would you trust something like that to be guarded? Who's doing the keeping? God is. Friends, God himself is guarding our inheritance. Picture the most secure, tight, impenetrable fortress in the world with every possible technological advance with a massive army of people guarding it. And you think, wow, nobody's getting in there. That is perfectly safe. This is infinitely more secure because God is the one making sure that absolutely nothing ever happens to damage, destroy, or defile this glorious inheritance. He himself ensures that no matter what this earthly life may hold for us, we can be 100% confident that our inheritance will be there waiting for us. Anything you go through, you don't have to wonder, I wonder if this is going to cause my inheritance to something to happen to it. He says, I'm keeping it. And if this inheritance costs the very blood of his son Jesus, do you think there are any lengths God won't go to in order to protect what he purchased for you? That's why our inheritance, friends, is indestructible and kept by God. But here's what's really amazing. Is that not only is God keeping and protecting our inheritance, verse 5 says he's also guarding us. This is doubly secure. Do you see how indestructible our hope is? God himself is guarding your inheritance for you, and he's guarding you for it. There is no way that anything will ever come between you and your inheritance. One person compared this to, like, on a really small scale. Think about when you plan a surprise party for someone, right? On one hand, you've got to, you've got to oversee all the details of getting the party ready, making sure that it's going to be fun and a joy, that there's all that's needed for the party and the celebration. But you can plan the best party, right? But somebody's still got to get the guest of honor there. Otherwise, they can't be surprised. And so you got to have somebody else you trust who's in charge of bringing that person and making sure they get to the party. If either one fails, it's not a very good party. If they show up with the birthday person and the party's not ready or it's a flop, that's not good. Or if they prepare a perfect party, but this person can't get them there, ah, still not good. What God is saying is he's saying, I'm doing both. I'm preparing the most incredible, joy-filled, wonderful, never-ending party you've ever seen. And I'm going to make good and sure you get there. Oh. Now, it's really important that we hear what Peter's saying here and what he's not saying. He is not promising that Christians will be guarded from suffering. Right? We know that because he's going to spend most of his letter talking about suffering. So he's not saying that we are guarded by God from suffering. He's saying will we be guarded as we go through suffering. Jesus said to his followers in Luke 21, he said, Some of you, they will put to death. But not a hair of your head will perish. 
What does that mean? What is Jesus saying by that? He's saying we might suffer the loss of our health, the loss of our jobs, even the loss of our lives, but we will never lose our inheritance. He'll not let our souls be lost or our hope be taken. Why? Because God guards us. Now notice two things about how God guards us. Two things. It's by his power and it's through faith. So what that tells us, that means that God doesn't keep you apart from you trusting him. It's not mechanistic, like, well, God's going to keep me. It doesn't matter whether I trust him. No, 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 no. You have to trust him. It's through your trusting him that he keeps you. And when it says through faith, it doesn't mean a one-time event. It means an ongoing, moment by moment, trusting in God and his promises. To reach our inheritance, we must keep believing all the way to the end. As Colossians 1 says, we must continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which we've heard. So in other words, don't stop believing. It's through your faith that he guards you for salvation. Now, it's at this point that if we're honest with ourselves, that might sound terrifying. Because I don't know about you, but I know how weak and feeble my faith can be at times. So if the means by which God guards us is through faith, that doesn't seem like a very secure salvation. Which is why those three words, by God's power, are so precious. He's saying, because behind and underneath and shot through your believing is the power of God at work to keep you believing. It's not an either or. It's not either it depends on your believing or it depends on God's power. It's both and. You must believe. Hear that. And for you to believe... God must work his faith-giving power in your heart. Philippians 2 says it this way, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If we were left to our own power, we know our faith would often fail. And nowhere would we have a better example of that idea than the author of this letter himself. Peter, right? One moment he could be so sure and confident, full of faith, Jesus, even if they all abandon you, I never will. But then three times, his faith faltered. But Peter knew firsthand about the guarding power of God. Because do you remember what Jesus told Peter in Luke 22 when he told him he was going to deny him? Here's what he said. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Why doesn't Peter's faith ultimately fail? Because Jesus is praying for him and God is guarding him. That's why we sing, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love, it's often cold. He must hold me fast. And what verse 5 says, 
is he does. He does. No matter how hard it gets, friends, his power will keep you trusting all the way home. By his power, he will guard us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And did you catch that last part? Your salvation, it's ready. Your salvation is ready. The work is finished. It's prepared for you. And now it's just waiting to be revealed. We often talk about salvation in the past tense. Say like, I I was saved at age 16. And that's a fine way to talk. But the Bible talks about salvation in three different ways. It talks about us, how we have been saved in the past, how we are being saved in the present, and how we will be saved one day in the future. And here, Peter's focus is on that future-oriented part of our salvation. He's saying that while we are saved now, and we experience parts of that, the fullness of our salvation is still hidden. We don't see it all now. But one day, our faith will be sight, and all that God has purchased for us, prepared for us, kept for us, and all that he's guarded us for will be revealed. And it will take our breath away. Romans 8 says about this revealing, it says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Friends, there's a glory coming that makes all the sufferings of this life look small and short. And when this glory is revealed, it says the fullness of who we are as sons of God will be revealed. We might look very ordinary today. You can't walk down the street and identify Christians by the way they look. But one day, because God has caused us to be born again, because he's made us new creations in Christ, because he's given us a new life, one day he will reveal the fullness of that life in us. He will reveal the fullness of our salvation. Now, when you think about all that, does that not make you want to explode with blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's what this theology is designed to do. These truths cause us to bless God because he has done it all. Past, present, and future. Did you catch this? In the past, God caused us to be born again to a living hope. In the past, God raised Jesus from the dead. And in the present, God is keeping our beautiful and indestructible inheritance. And right now, God is guarding us by his power through faith. And one day in the future, God will reveal the glorious fullness of our salvation. From beginning to end, God did it. That's the truth that causes Peter to stand up and bless God because God has done it and we owe everything to him. So let me ask you this morning, does your theology make you burst out in worship? Does what you believe about God cause you to sing? If not, friends, maybe your theological batteries are dead. If so, take them out this morning. 
and replace them with these power-packed truths about who God is and how he saves us. These truths will fuel your worship. They will cause your heart to light up in praise of the God who gives us new life and a living hope.